Uh, if we haven't met, I would love to meet you. Uh, my name is Brian Haybig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And that was Jake Patton, uh, who was leading us in worship. But we're glad you're here. Great to have you. It's always good to see faces that we know and ones we don't know. But uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to. We are in a series of uh, looking at the Ten Commandments in more depth. That's going to occupy us this fall. And so we're going to pick up there from last week. We're going to be looking at the Third Commandment this morning. So the, uh, it's a short passage to look at, just one verse, Exodus 20, verse 7. And uh, you, can, you can see that in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, a movie that I saw a while back, haven't seen it in a while. I think it came out in the 80s, if not late 80s or early 90s, but... It was an adaptation of a book by E.M. Forrester, A Room with a View. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie before, but I've heard, uh, I've heard at least one friend quote a, a scene from that movie. And again, I haven't seen it in a while. I don't remember the exact wording or details. But one of the main characters in the book and in the movie is named Lucy. In the movie, she's played by Helena Bonham Carter before she played all those evil roles, you know, that she got into later. But um, hanging out with Tim Burton, way too much. But... She, uh, she's engaged to be married to this man, but there's this, there's this other man that shows up when she's on these travels, and he's, he's handsome, and he's intriguing, and so different from her fiancé. So those are some of the subplots. But in this scene, um, Lucy, has, she's been around these older women that she knows, and these two older women are, are talking with each other, and one says to the other, she doesn't look like a woman about to be married. She doesn't look like a woman in love. I, I want you to think about this commandment. You know, I, I, I feel the need over and over to try to get us to look at these commandments with new eyes. They're just, they're so, well, I shouldn't say iconic, but uh, they're, they're just, they're so tectonic and massive, and they've always been there in our lives that sometimes we just read them and they just kind of look the way they've always looked. And I want you to think about it this way before I just read the commandment that in these ten commandments, or as the Hebrew would say, in these ten words, God embeds a commandment that in many ways is a diagnostic. And it's a diagnostic for us to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, do I talk like someone who is engaged? Do I talk like someone who is in love? Specifically, with God himself. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to pray along with the psalmist, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. They're more to be desired than gold, uh, more than honey from the comb. And Father, the way that we come this morning, your word may not seem very valuable or something that tastes sweet and that's strengthening. So if that's how we come, we pray that you would all the more help us, even save us from ourselves, and really open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
when, uh, when I was in, we would have said junior high, I guess here would be middle school. When I was in junior high, there was a substitute teacher at my school. She, she had retired a long time ago, but she was a regular substitute teacher named Mrs. Cooper. Mrs. Cooper was born in 1840, and uh, when I had her, I think she was around 138 years old. But she has just, you know, been around forever. And when I say to you that she was an old school teacher, I'm telling you, it's kind of, you know, it's like one of those things you don't know what you have till it's gone. Uh, she, she was a teacher from another time, and I'm so glad I got to be around her. But I remember sometimes when she would be, you know, this is old school, just kind of her sitting at the desk in small classroom, you know, like the front, the front row is pretty close to the edge of her desk, and that's going to be important in a second. Um, but sometimes she would just talk about things from her past, and she would just say, she would talk about things that now I see the weight of it. But when I was just, you know, 12, 13 years old, I didn't feel the weight of it. Like when she would talk about growing up with war, you know, and she would use phrases like the boys who never came home. And, you know, and to us, we're just kind of like throwing spitballs at each other while she's saying that. But now I think about just how poignant that must have been for her to talk about things like that. Well, one time she was on one of these monologues and I had diverted from whatever we were studying in class. And, and she said, she was talking about World War II and she grew up with World War II. And she said something about a particular battle, and she called it a bloodbath. And my, my desk was right up front next to her desk. And so, you know, I was at that age where I felt like I had a constitutional requirement to make everything into a joke. I, just that expression, bloodbath, I thought was, that sounded funny to me. And I, and I said something audibly, I guess, to the person next to me, joking about that expression. And she looked at me and said, I don't appreciate that. And like over 35 years later, I remember how I felt and what I thought. I thought, that was really dumb what I just did. Like, she's talking about people getting killed. I just joked about people getting killed. But in the moment, I didn't realize I was doing that because I had not experienced war I mean, still haven't directly. I've, I've never been in combat. I've lived in a time of war. But she, she had experienced it. She had felt it. It, it. it affected her relationships. And so she spoke out of her experience. I was flippant because I had been untouched by it. And I, I want you to take that template and, again, apply that to this commandment. I, if, if we're not careful, what this commandment can sound like to our ears is, don't cuss. And we'll touch on that in a second. But here's what God is saying. When you speak about me or make a vow by my name, or when you handle things that pertain to me, don't be disengaged. I want you to speak and act and worship and talk and sing as an activity of your heart. And to hook back into the earlier illustration, I want you to talk like people who are engaged to me. Because he essentially says that at, at Mount Sinai. You will be my treasured possession. And that's the biblical metaphor, Old and New Testament. I don't just save you to let you be more religious and to behave yourselves. But I, I save you to marry you. I save you to inhabit you. Now speak that way. So let's look at this. And I, I want to ask 
a few questions of the, of the commandment. Um, first off, what, what does taking in vain mean? What is that? If it's not just don't say cuss words, what does take in vain mean? Second, uh, when do we use God's name? And to the point, when do we use God's name in vain, typically? And then third, what do we do about it? How do we change? All right, so let's, let's dive into this. First off, what does it mean to take in vain? And I've already alluded to this, but I think that where our minds run would be something... Now, I'm, you know, I'm going to try not to be inappropriate, but I'm going to have to acknowledge ways of taking God's name in vain and by being vulgar. It would be like to say GD, but, yeah, but not use the, the abbreviation. Uh, to use something like, <clears throat> from a New Testament perspective, to say Jesus Christ is sort of your own personal exclamation point, something like that. And certainly, that's true. But, but actually, that, that phrase that we translate, to take his name in vain, is actually difficult to translate. And that's interesting, because you would think that, like, in the Ten Commandments, that would just be the most straightforward language. And maybe for those Hebrews, it was. But for us... It's hard to get at what exactly is that expression talking about. Now, I try when you're here not to read you like long bookie quotes, but let let me read you just a couple of sentences by an Old Testament scholar because I thought this was a good summary. He says this. After looking at the different ways that Hebrew terminology is used, he says, the evidence points to the fact that taking the Lord's name in vain will surely cover profanity, as that term is understood today, or swearing falsely in the Lord's name. So like if you, uh, in court, were told that if you um, affirm that you were going to tell the truth, so help me God, and then you gave false testimony. So those would be obvious breaches of the commandment. But then here's what the scholar goes on to say. But it will also include using the Lord's name lightly, unthinkingly, or by rote. You know what by rote is? That's just kind of to do something on autopilot. Say the words. Don't even have to think about what I'm saying. I'm not engaged with it. And he makes a point about one one way he got to that evidence. And it's a book called the Septuagint. And again, this may sound teachy, but I want you to know what these terms mean. If you're ever reading in an English Bible and you see a marginal note or a footnote and you see the symbol LXX, and you didn't know what, you're like, what in the world is that? It looks like the Roman numeral 70, and it is. That shorthand for a book called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a book that existed in the days of Jesus and the apostles. We, you can still get a copy of it now. But it's the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. There's different kinds of Greek. There's classical Greek, and now there's modern Greek. But it's the same kind of Greek that's the language of the New Testament. And so it's really a valuable book to see people who spoke Hebrew, when they translated it into another language, what was was their sense of a certain word or a phrase? When the people who translated the Greek for the Septuagint, whoever did this, when they got to the third commandment, they, they translated it to take the name of the Lord or bear the name of the Lord thoughtlessly. So, so think about it this way. Think about the different experience of like, let's say, of different people saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. Now, now picture the experience, let's say, back to war, back to combat, of someone who has served in harm's way under that flag, who has been in combat 
and lost friends under that flag, maybe got the Purple Heart under that flag. Now picture that man or woman saying the Pledge of Allegiance and what's going on inside that person if they're not embittered by their experience. What's going on inside that person when he or she says the Pledge versus, you know, what was like my experience growing up, let's say third grade now, where we're saying the Pledge of Allegiance in class and like my friend is behind me and I'm trying to kick him, you know, like with my foot or something. And I can say the words by rote, but I'm not thinking about them. I really don't know what most of these words mean. I don't know what indivisible is. I'm just saying these terms. That would be an example, Pledge of Allegiance, of saying the pledge in vain. It's not like overt hostility to the flag. It's just being thoughtless. It's just being disengaged. Autopilot. All right, so that's what the term means, to to do that with God's name. So here's the question. When when do we use God's name? Uh, Again, the big target would be using it as your own personal rhetorical exclamation point. You know, using it as your little rhetorical flourish to show that you're angry or you're upset or you're shocked or you want to be funny. And that can be GD or other versions of that. But what are other ways in which we traffic in God's name and that would be, you know, target-rich environments for using his name thoughtlessly? And I think there's three big groups. It would be worship, promises, and then what I'm just going to call processing. Like thinking about your life and talking about your life. Worship, promises, and, uh, and processing. So, I mean, think about worship. Think about even this morning. What was the call to worship? And as I've been saying lately, you know, this was not a coincidence. The call to worship was from Psalm 113, and it was a call to praise what? The name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. Did you think about what you were saying? Or were you still in the parking lot? Or are you already anticipating lunch? And just for equal time, so that you'll know that I'm like, we're on an equal footing. I'm preaching on this this morning. I've been thinking about this, especially this past week. I caught myself just a few minutes ago preoccupied by the sermon I'm about to preach. So I'm not thinking about the words that we're singing and saying to God because I'm thinking about that I'm about to preach on do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Every week we, we pray the Lord's Prayer. But you know, when you pray something over and over and over and over, it gets so deep down in, in your memory and your insides that you can say it without thinking. And you know, that's especially grievous because what's the first request that we make? Our Father, who art in heaven, then what's the first thing we ask? Hallowed be thy name. Lord, you know, like, there's all these things that we could pray about, but the number one thing we're going to pray about, because Jesus taught us to, the first thing we're going to pray is, Lord, may your name be set apart and special and different, honored and celebrated like no other name. That's the first thing we ask. Did you think about it? When we come to this table, which has the Lord's name on it, around it, it's done in his name, you can pop the bread in your mouth, we can take the cup and we can 
sip it. We can do it with engaged hearts. Or we can do it by rote. That's what dead religion is like. Do the right things by rote. So worship is a huge one. Like right now is a target-rich environment to take the name of the Lord in vain. Promises. Now, the most obvious example, again, would be if you uh, swore an oath in a courtroom or in maybe some other setting where you affirm that you're going to tell the truth, so help me God, and then you gave false testimony. You lied. You meant the truth. When you'd used God's name to say that I will tell the truth. But there's other promises, like marriage, marriage vows. Now, we, we tend to think that the real badness of the things we do in our relationships, that the, the, the main arena of the badness is horizontal. That it's the thing that transpires between me and this other person. In this case, between me and, if you're married, and, and my spouse. But primarily, our offenses are vertical. That everything that I promised to do as a husband, I did in the name of God. With this ring, I thee wed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses. And that's the thing. It's like like when a husband doesn't cherish a wife. When a wife doesn't honor a husband. It's not just just a horizontal offense. First and foremost, vertically, we affirmed that we would do something. We vowed before him and others in his name. And then we kind of do what we want. That's taking his name in vain. Or standing in front of a congregation. And affirming that, you know, I'm making a covenant with God and his people. I will do these things. I promise to strive to live a godly life. I promise before God to support the church and its worship and work to the best of my ability. And then we default to what we default to. So promises, target-rich environment. But the third may be the trickiest, and it's just all the in-between time of life when we talk about our lives. When we think about our lives and we try to process what's happening and why what's happening. Let me quote something to you from, uh, from our catechism. It says this, that one of the ways... Or one of the, it would say one of the sins that's forbidden in the third commandment. Now, this, this is written in the 1640s, so the language is older. But just hear me out. One way that we do that is murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into, and misapplying of God's decrees and providences. Misinterpreting, misapplying, or in any way perverting the word or any part of it. Now, here's what that looks like. Curious prying into, misapplying of God's providence. What that looks like is when you or I are just kind of talking and thinking out loud, and we say something like, you know what I think God is doing here? Like, we look at the circumstances, and we try to decode it and deconstruct and go, okay, well, okay, I know the plot line now. I know the thing that God is up to. And the catechism is saying, no, you don't. 
No, we don't, because he is God, and we are not. And to use the words of Ecclesiastes, God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Or as Proverbs says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Can you look back on times of your life and go, I had no idea what he was doing there until I got way on the other side of it. And maybe we still don't know. But that's a way that we take his name in vain. You know, I, I know what God is up to. I mean, even though he's infinite and I'm finite, and even though he's immortal and I'm mortal, and even though he's like from all eternity and I started in 1967, I think I know what he's doing right here. Let's take his name in vain. Or misinterpreting, misapplying the word. You know, the, the, the toss-away phrases that we... You know, things like, you know, I just don't think that it's a big deal to God, such and such. And really, we're just speaking out of our feelings when maybe he has explicitly said that something is a big deal to him. That's taking his name in vain. And this is, this is where I do have to dip into the New Testament and, and make this point again about the law, the law of God. And the Apostle Paul drives this home in <laughs> no uncertain terms. The law does not have the power to change us. It has the power to expose us as lawbreakers. And we are lawbreakers. It has the power to show us what we're really like, to show ways that we do fall short of the glory of God, even though we may not feel like we're falling that short of the glory of God. Well, here's a big one. And just knowing the third commandment doesn't have the power to change how we talk or sing or dialogue about God. So I hope that's pushing us to the third question, and that is, what do we do? How do we change? Because make no mistake about it, what's, you know, there's, there's the command, but then the Lord makes sure that we hear something else. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, then I would say that all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty of doing this. So what do we do? You know, the, the command says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yahweh your God in vain. Where's the first place that that expression, Yahweh your God, shows up on Mount Sinai? It's before the commandments begin. And we've actually looked at this at least a couple of times now. Before God gives commandment number one, he affirms this. I am Yahweh your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then the commandments begin. What does he say? I am Yahweh your God. I've already rescued you. I'm already committed to you. You're already engaged to me. Now, here's how I want you to live. Why is that so important to remember that? Um, a few years ago, I saw a little quick piece on uh, CBS News. In fact, I, I found it online again this week, and maybe we can post it on our um, social media stuff. But it was, it, it was, the story came out about three or four years ago. And it was about the experience of a woman who lost her husband in World War II. And his name was Billy Harris. 
and her name is Peggy Harris. Lives in Vernon, Texas. Her husband was a pilot in World War II, and he was part of the just kind of overall D-Day efforts. And at some point, um, I think is either part of or the aftermath of the D-Day invasion, he was shot down over German-occupied France, and his plane was going down, and it was headed straight for a French village named Levant. Now, all his wife, or widow, ever got, because of just miscommunications, things that fell through the cracks, the only thing that she heard officially was that he, uh, his plane went down and he was lost. So she had come to grips with the fact that, you know, he died. Never remarried. Never moved on. Widow the rest of her life. She had a relative that decided to do a little bit more digging, see what kind of info he could find out about her, uh, her husband. And what he uncovered is like something out of a movie. There were eyewitnesses the day that his plane was going down and was headed straight for Levant. And the eyewitnesses saw him very intentionally bank his plane and avert the village and crash into the, the woods. In fact, I, they, they, uh, they showed a photograph of his grave. First they buried him locally and then they put him in, in an American cemetery. But in his local grave, the village, because they watched what he did. I mean, he's not only over there trying to free France, but he made sure not to hurt their village as he went down. There were flowers stacked up knee-high on his grave. The main thoroughfare of Levant, and this is the strangest combination of a French and American name, is Plaz Billy D. Harris. Three times a year, the people of the village will march down that street to the monument with the name of the war dead, and they'll read the names. And when they show this, the mayor of the town gets choked up. This is like 70 years later. She still gets choked up just saying his name. And this was going on, and his widow didn't know it. She does now. Now think about this. Think about if, 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 if for an adult in that village of Levant, if, you know, if... if if a grown-up heard a kid speaking flippantly about this man named Billy D. Harris, what would they say to that child? Would they say, it, don't do that, that's against the rules? Or would they tell that child the story that this man came over here to help rescue us and even averted harming our village so that we would be safe? That's why we think his name is special. You know, there's really only one voice that has, if I may say it this way, who has the right to say, God damn you. And it's God's. Only God really has the right to say that. But when we worship, that's not what we leave with. Every week, a group of lawbreakers gathers in this room, but we're not sent out with a malediction. We are sent out with a benediction. And about half the time, the benediction that I love to use is one that God gave to the high priest. 
for the day of atonement. So the Lord bless you, not damn you. It's the opposite. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And actually God says in the instructions for the high priest, and when you do that, you place my name on my people. But what we have got to remember over and over and over, we have to sing it and read it and confess it. We've got to remind each other over it when we're sad and when we're crying and when we're having coffee and just in the mundane. Is that the reason that we leave with a benediction is somebody had to get our malediction. And what that means is that God sent his son so that after flawlessly keeping the commandments, God could look at him and say, are you ready to be treated as the covenant breakers? Our covenant breakers, are you ready to be treated as they deserve? Are you ready to be treated like someone who takes my name in vain, although he never did? And the cross is God saying, God damn you. So that we can have the cup of blessing. Here's the cup of wrath. So that they can have the cup of blessing. Benediction is expensive. See, here's the thing. In that illustration, Jesus is not just the pilot. Jesus is the woods. He averts the wrath of God, the justice that we deserve away from us, and then lets it hit him. That's what makes his name precious. That Yahweh sent him. And he came for us. That's why the New Testament will say things like, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Which Paul by that meant, Jesus is Yahweh. To the glory of God the Father. It's hard to keep marriage vows. Hard to keep marriage vows. We get under each other's skin. We take each other for granted. We hurt each other and get these long, old hurts. How do you keep marriage vows over years and decades? It better be something big and it better be something powerful. The name of the one who always keeps his covenant to us. And our groom always keeps his word. Those are the resources for keeping our word. Or what, what, what if I have gotten accustomed to just being flippant or casual in the way I talk about God? You, you, you know what is the antidote to referring to God as like the man upstairs? You know what the antidote for that is? It's not to be scolded about the third commandment. The way to stop talking about God in a flippant way, the way to stop saying Jesus Christ is like my own little exclamation point when I think something's funny or shocking, the way to undo that in our hearts is to know God. To know the love of God in Christ. That he should have regarded me as guilty. But he put his guilt on somebody who never took his name in vain. 
who himself had that name. That I might be found guiltless. Uh, I, let, me, let me end by telling you a story. And I, I don't know how much I can convey this. But, I, um, but this just came to mind so many times when I was looking at this sermon. And so I just want to relay it to you. Share it with you. I was, I was part of a service of a worship service, and it was a service that required several different ministers being there. And so a friend of mine was also involved in this service. This is when I lived in another state. And uh, so we decided we were going to ride together to this other town and be part of this worship service. So we're driving down there, and we're just old friends. We're talking, catching up. And just so you'll know, the guy that I'm talking about, he, he, I've heard him identify himself as a total meathead. So when you hear this story, don't picture somebody that's just hypersensitive about everything and super touchy-feely about everything, but kind of man's man, meathead kind of guy. And we're, we're driving down, and he's talking about wanting his children to know the Lord. And he was talking about his daughter, who's now grown, about when he was, uh, when he was giving her a bath the night before that they were singing a song. And he said, we were singing that song, uh, There Is a Name I Love to Hear. And this is a children's song. It was a hymn. It's now used as a children's song. I don't hear it as much anymore. But it says, there is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ears. It's the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. So I was driving. He was in the passenger seat. And um, he said, can we sing that song? And I thought, okay, okay. And it's kind of like a Jesus loves me, this I know kind of song. So we're just two grown men driving down I-55. There is a name I love to hear. And he just, he just cried when he sang the song. Why? Why did it touch his heart? And, you know, it's easy when you hear things like that to think, well, you know, he's a very special kind of person. Well, you know, as his friend, I would say he is a special kind of person. But I know what he would say if he was here. You know why? The reason I got tears in my eyes is the last part of that song. Because he first loved me. His name is precious because he first loved me. I don't need to say GD. He broke the power of sin. He first loved me. I don't need to lie. I don't need to act like this is filler. I can speak and sing and use his name from my heart because he first loved me. The law points us to Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we who have broken vows and broken promises and done thoughtless worship and used your name for humor or to cuss, oh, how we need a Savior. Thank you for perfect Jesus. Thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for sending him to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being treated as if you were guilty. Thank you for making your people guiltless. 
Thank you for breaking the power of sin in our lives. Please change us so that we're truth tellers, that we speak about your name like it's the most special thing in the world, and we ask this in your name. Amen.